This episode is brought to you by GoSim. Visit GoSim.com slash best of the left to start saving 85% on calls when you travel abroad. Now, welcome to this slightly too funny edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, This American Life, The Onion Radio News, The Colbert Report, and The Young Turks. Because when you think about the economy and want to cry, the best thing to do is laugh. But tonight, let's begin with the economy in our ongoing segment, Cluster to the Poorhouse. All right. I think that was real drywall, for God's sakes. Do you remember last year when all the banks were going broke, the big banks, and we gave them like 700 billion dollars with zero interest and no strings attached so that they would have some money to lend back to us <laughs> at between six and 30 percent interest <laughs> but we had to do it to avoid a worldwide financial market meltdown a post-apocalyptic dystopian future where roasted squirrel meat would be our currency <laughs> mm. Also a Hanukkah treat. <laughs> well, a year later, I am happy to report the banks are doing great. They're paying back the money we lent them. They're posting record profits. I, I guess the one thing they forgot to do was start loaning the money that we gave them back to us. <laughs> or changing their risky business practices or curtail in any way their grotesque, myopic, and ultimately destructive financial incentive structure. Well, <laughs> funny story. Look out, Wall Street, because the president has had enough. I did not run for office to be helping out a bunch of, uh, you know, fat cat bankers on Wall Street. I guess, I guess it just happened to work out that way. All right. Happy accident. Well, the free ride is over, bitches. <laughs> On Monday, the President of these United States summoned the heads of the biggest financial institutions to a no-holds-barred breakfast meeting at the White House in the Roosevelt Room, where the President would finally force the banks to make good on the promises that we never made them make. <laughs> And when the most powerful man in the world says jump, what do the CEOs of the three biggest financial institutions say? Three of the top bankers invited to the White House apparently won't be able to attend in person because their flights were delayed due to bad weather. Bad weather? Uh, yesterday was sunny. <laughs> yesterday was a nice day. Unless you were flying down to Washington Icarus style on wings of wax and you were concerned there might be a little meltage, I'm not biting. Floyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs, John Mack of Morgan Stanley, and Richard Parsons, chairman of Citigroup, were grounded in New York due to heavy D.C. fog. Oh, fog, I didn't know. You know, you're going from New York to D.C. to sit down with the president. Was it the kind of fog that also stops trains? <laughs> You're telling me Goldman Sachs doesn't have a teleporter? <laughs> All right, fine. Hope 
hopefully the bankers were at least appropriately apologetic. I appreciate you guys calling in. I'm sorry that uh, the flight uh, got held up. Sorry again, Mr. President. Yeah, we feel terrible, sir. Hey, you guys order the atomic wings and bucket of Bud Light? Apparently, they were holed up in a Hooters. <laughs> so, the meeting did take place, some of it on speakerphone. The post-meeting takeaway, Mr. President. America's banks received extraordinary assistance from American taxpayers to rebuild their industry. We expect them to explore every responsible way to help get our economy moving again. That's after the meeting? You're still speaking in the future tense. Oh, oh, and I guess if they don't do that at the next breakfast meeting, <laughs> no omelet bar. Won't you come see about me? I'll be alone. Dancing, you know it, baby. Tell me your troubles and doubts. Giving everything inside and out question that lots of us have about 2010 is, is the economy finally going to get better? Well, making predictions about that is a very big business. Economists at every government in the world, every state in the union, at big banks and big private companies have spent the last couple of weeks finishing up their 2010 forecasts. It's probably hundreds of thousands of man hours and hundreds of millions of dollars devoted to seeing into the future. And knowing that we're all going to be hearing these forecasts in the news around this time of year, for our last story in today's show, we asked Alex Bloomberg and Adam Davidson to explain to us what do these forecasters know and what don't they know. We asked around. We asked former Fed officials and big shots at major banks, and they told us if money is no object and you really want to know the economic future, here's who you call. A firm named Macroeconomic Advisors and its forecasting wonderkind, Joel Pracken. The Department of the Treasury is a client of ours, the Office of Management Budget, the CBO. Uh, the Federal Reserve Board is a client of ours. Many of the regional Federal Reserve Banks, many central banks from around the world are clients of ours, in fact. Almost any household name on Wall Street is a client of ours. Right. What makes macroeconomic advisors so special is their computer model that they've made of the entire U.S. economy. Now, of course, a lot of forecasters use computer models, but theirs is unusually comprehensive. This has been Joel Pracken's life's work. He's been carefully studying how different parts of the economy affect each other. You know, if you think about it, it's pretty obvious that if average wages go up, if people make more money, they'll buy more stuff. But how much more stuff? That is where Joel's model comes in. 
If wages go up by, say, 4%, how many more cars will people buy? And what will that do to the inflation rate? And how will the inflation rate affect home sales? In an economy, everything is connected. Everything is related. And for the past 28 years, Joel has been figuring out those exact relationships and writing those relationships down in a series of equations, which he shows us. And in the world of economic forecasting, showing us those equations is like showing us the secret recipe for Coca-Cola. Although, frankly, Pratt a lot less worried about the secret getting out than Coca-Cola is. He's very happy to show us his equations because what are we going to do? Steal them? We can't even understand them. If we scroll down a little bit further to look at some of the equations, oh, actually, yeah, okay. So, so here is oh an equation. Yeah, so Whoa! It gets worse every day. It, gets, it does get worse. <laughs> so, so to get at what this equation looks like on the radio, I'm going to read it. It says ECDO over KCDO subscript negative one equals... Which means last periods minus one. That subscript minus one means last periods KCDO. Okay. Equals 0.16 plus 0.006008 times DUM92 plus 4.447867 times the change in KH plus... The log of KH. Oh, the log of KH. Don't miss that. Plus 17 over... I don't even know what Sigma, those, that's the sum sigma of alpha. Of right. One of, you, one of you remembers your Greek. It's a summation. Right. And I didn't even get done reading the equation. There's still yeah. a whole other <laughs> There's line. There's a whole second line. Yeah, you did <laughs> half of the equation. <laughs> I think you probably read enough. Now, I just want to point out also, so this one page here... There are, what, I'm looking at the, the PDF, it says there's um, 400... You're on page 49 of 447. Somewhere an economics grad student is listening to that and thinking, oh, you sum alpha to an N of 17. <laughs> right. Joel let us play around with his model, and it was it was fun. It was like as much fun as I've ever had with a computer screen full of numbers. You could change one thing and watch the effect ripple out throughout the economy. Like we made Joel pretend a war broke out in Saudi Arabia, and the average price of oil went from $70 to $100. Boom, unemployment went up for the next three years. It's like a, a real-world sim game, sort of. And Joel says that sometimes even his clients want to play. They're constantly asking him to show the worst, worst-case scenario. What if everything goes wrong? Um, he's not actually sure this helps them plan anything, but he does it for him. Now, most of the data Pracken plugs into his model is free. Anyone can download it from government websites. And you'd think that the data would be the simple part of all this. There's no fancy math. It's just facts, like how many people were unemployed in 2008, for example. But it turns out even the data is not simple. And this points to a big problem in forecasting. Joel was showing us how he puts new data into the model, and this was data from a government agency called the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. For those of you who aren't accountants, the third quarter of 2009 ended in September, but Joel only gets the data from the third quarter around Christmas, three months after the quarter has already ended. And that data, it's not firm. In fact, the BEA calls it an estimate. Uh, What's called the final estimate for third quarter GDP. Wait, they have to estimate what happened three three months months ago. (laughs) Well, they can't even get a firm number. Well, they make they make three estimate. Well, they make they make many estimates of what happened (laughs) the previous quarter. Uh, We had the first estimate of the third quarter. A month later, a second estimate. A month after that, 
a third estimate. In July of every year, we get uh, a so-called annual revision of that, so that's a fourth estimate. Uh, a July after that, we get the fifth. July after that, we get the sixth. Wait, you mean it's like three years after the year that we... Right. There are so-called three-year revisions to GDP that go back three years. <laughs> but I just want to point out, we are calling you to ask what 2010 is going to be like. And what I'm hearing is, if we're lucky, by summertime, you can tell us what 2007 was like. <laughs> well, if we're lucky, by July of this year, we'll have our first our first true annual estimate of what 2009 was like. We'll have our second true annual estimate of what 2008 was like, and we'll have our third true annual estimate of what 2007 was like. And, and you're not even telling us when will we actually know. You know, you never know for sure. I think is the answer here. They just give up <laughs> guessing. And then on occasion, <laughs> and then on occasion, the BEA introduces a new and improved methodology for processing all the source data and will revise the entire history of GDP all the way back to 1929 to reflect the improved methodologies. Economists have a joke which speaks exactly to this point. They say, how can we predict the future? We can't even predict the past. Yeah, we've, we found all these different economist jokes on this subject, uh, and a lot of them get sort of wonky. Like, here's one example. There are two types of economists, those who can't forecast interest rates and those who do not know that they can't forecast interest rates. Or my personal favorite, attributed to that great economic forecaster, Yogi Berra, the hardest thing to forecast is the future. Now, all these jokes point to a pretty dismal reality. Economic forecasters, even the best, just are not that good at forecasting the economy. face dollars to boost the economy. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Officials of the U.S. Department of the Treasury expressed confidence today that their new smiley face dollar bill design will give the lagging U.S. economy a much-needed shot in the arm. Deputy Secretary Robert Kimmett says getting rid of the old engraving of George Washington was, quote, long overdue. While we feel there's certainly nothing wrong with Washington's image and it's certainly patriotic, we feel that uh, it doesn't quite say spin me the way this new bill does. Kimmett added that the department is designing a new $5 bill with the words just go crazy printed on both sides. Doyle Redland for The Onion.
have this chart that shows how they've done over the last 20 years. On average, the best economic forecasters, including Prakin's macroeconomic advisors, have been off by an average of one percentage point per year in predicting how good the economy will do. Now, that might sound pretty good, one percentage point, but in economic forecasts, that can be the difference between night and day or recession and growth. If a forecast is for the economy to grow by 2% next year, a percentage point error margin means it'll grow somewhere between 1% and 3%. But 1% growth is really bad. That doesn't even keep up with the population growth. It means there's going to be more unemployment, more layoffs. That's a grim economy. 3% is the exact opposite. Unemployment will go down. People will start feeling better. They'll build homes and start new businesses. And that 1% margin of error, that's in a good year. Worst case, these forecasts completely miss a huge economic upheaval. For example, our most recent economic upheaval. In January of 2008, right before the economy collapsed, the leading forecasters were predicting a pretty decent year. In fact, we now know the worst recession in decades had already begun, and not only did they not forecast it, they didn't even notice that it had already started. By the way, economic forecasters also missed the 1982 recession, the 1984 recovery, the late 90s stock bubble, the 2001 recession. You get the idea. You know, economic forecasting is inherently an impossible task. This is MIT economist Simon Johnson. Listeners might recognize his voice. He's been on the show before. We were talking to him because of his former job as an economic forecaster. He was actually the chief economist at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, where he was responsible for delivering the IMF's annual economic forecasts, which he says was pretty stressful because he knew there were all these things he didn't know. Between now and the end of next year, the world will be hit by three major shocks, probably. You mean that's just on average more concrete. over the yes, last exactly. century or whatever? There's stuff Stuff happens, okay? And, you know, the, the thing you're studying is, is subject to so much chaos in, in, a, in a mathematical sense, so much randomness, random, relatively small random things that can have big outcomes because a lot of nonlinearity, if you want to use a technical expression, in, in, in the way this system operates. And, and so making any forecast has inherently got, got this problem. Talking to Simon, you realize chaotic randomness is just one of many problems confronting an economist trying to make a forecast. For example, in Simon's case, there are politics involved as well. Simon was constantly getting pressure from other countries to revise his IMF forecast. He even gotten a famous tussle, famous in the world of international finance at least, with the French and German governments when they said his forecast was too downbeat. But Simon says global politics is not the only non-mathematical factor that throws off forecasts. There's also your own ego. You know, the hardest thing about forecasting, actually, is that you get too committed to the forecast. You get too committed to what you said last time because it's just too embarrassing to say, oops, I, you know, I was wrong. A lot of stuff happened. We misread it. We have to make a big revision. People hate to make big revisions to their forecasts, and I'm no exception. This happened to me, actually, this year. This year, I mean, we had, I think, a lot of good analysis. We, we made some good calls early in the year. And, and then one of the people I work with very closely started to say, you know, I think there's going to be a recovery. And I said, how can it be a recovery? We've pointed out all these massive problems. We're very wedded to this view that we're going down and we're staying down. And, you know, he pointed out to me that this is, you know, economies usually bounce back. Even economies with deep-seated, you know, problems, for example, the bank system can bounce back in this sort of situation. And I realized that this – I had to get over – the, you know, the fact that I diagnosed problems had convinced me that we, you know, that 
the initially negative forecast had been a good call, and then I was still staying negative when I should have revised positive. Uh, but it's hard to change. It's hard to change your mind like that. You've told people you've stuck your neck out. You've been to events. You said I think it's going to be you know it's going to be flat from here, and and you realize that that's, you have to go out and say I've changed my mind. I've updated. Not, that's not an easy thing to do when you went around telling people. And yet you were quite convincing when you told people all these negative things. Now, I, I got to say, Simon, you, you did make some very strong predictions in you know, January, February of this year that were, I found, incredibly persuasive, which were that basically, if I recall correctly, if the U.S. government does not take over several of our leading banks, we are in for a severe uh, long-term financial crisis akin to the lost decade in Japan where basically there was no economic growth for for a long, long, long time. It, it seems right now you were, you were wrong on that, right? Yes, I was wrong. And that's a hard thing to say. Right. And I think, you know, Adam just called me on it they in, in the most embarrassing fashion. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. I'm blushing <laughs> deeply here. Um, because, you know, it's hard for me to say. It's hard. I mean, how am I going to get out of that one? One guy who is constantly confronted with the limits of economic forecasts is Randy Moore. He puts out the very influential Blue Chip Economic Indicator Newsletter, which compiles the 50 leading economic forecasts. Randy averages them out and produces what's called the Blue Chip Consensus Forecast, the distilled thinking of the 50 best economic minds in American business. Now, the Blue Chip Forecast Newsletter does not come cheap. It'll cost you $875 for a year subscription. Oh, that's nothing compared to Joel Pracken's macroeconomic advisors. That's like a twenty to hundred grand a year, right? Yeah, but you get a much bigger forecast. And both these guys have lots of customers. Governments are using them to plan budgets and make decisions about taxing and spending. Banks use it to decide who to lend money to and where to invest their extra money. Companies use the information to figure out how many people to hire or fire or how much steel to buy or whatever. It has a huge impact. But for a guy who makes his living selling economic forecasts, Randy's pretty honest about how accurate he thinks they are. Any economic forecast that you see that has that includes a decimal point implies a level of accuracy that reality suggests uh, isn't present. So you would rather if if most forecasts just ended with ish, like it'll be two ish, well, it'll be well, three ish, just two, <laughs> two ish, three ish, exactly. Wow. So that, I love that idea that we should make a not make a law, but we should encourage economists to just add and and with ish, but, the yeah. economy will be three ish, it'll be good ish. Unfortunately, that's not what the consumers of economic forecast want. People that want those forecasts want. Decimal point forecast. <laughs> but but that's so interesting to me is that the, the people who are using these forecasts, they want a level of pre- precision that they themselves have to know by experience is just not possible. I agree with that. What's going on there? I don't have a ready explanation for that. It's, it's difficult to, to plug in. A two-ish number. Excel doesn't recognize two-ish or three-ish. Uh, you know, it, people have been going to oracles, you know, since the days of Delphi. Um, and, you know, I don't think anybody that shows up, uh, you know, has the expectation that it's going to be completely right. But But there's comfort in being told that. And I think that's probably what those decimal points are.
But of course, what are people supposed to do? One economic forecaster we talked to told a story about being on the board of a small not-for-profit. They were trying to figure out how to balance their budget for the coming year, what to charge for services. At one point in the discussions, a board member looked to this economist and said, where do you think interest rates will be next year? Sort of the economist's version of asking a doctor, this mole, you think I should get it looked at? So there this economist was with all these people looking at him like, you're the expert. You know what the future is. Tell us. And the economist could not just say, I I have no idea. The future is void. The organization needed to stay open. The budget needed to be balanced. Fees needed to be set. He needed to make a forecast. I would call it a necessary evil. Again, Simon Johnson. Uh, you know, it, there's so much impre- imprecision. There's so much, you know, lagging in terms of our updating uh, that in some sense we'd be better off without forecasts. We're better off, you know, making up our minds afresh every day. But the problem is you can't do that. All of these, um, the businesses, the institutions, all involve um, thinking about the future and planning for the future. Um, and you, you can't do that. Uh, without taking a view of the future. In other words, there's one thing we can say for sure about the future. It will come. And just because we don't know what it will bring doesn't mean we shouldn't make our best guess. Here we go. of the Best of the Left podcast are the wind beneath my wings. Their donations of as little as $5 a month are what allow me to keep this show on a steady schedule twice a week instead of just once as it has been in the past. In return, members receive access to the Best of the Left raw feed where they receive all of the clips that end up in the show, plus bonus material that doesn't make the final cut. And content in the raw feed is delivered in its original video format when available. If you appreciate the service that this show provides, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. The New York Times, his new book is called Too Big to Fail, the inside story of how Wall Street and Washington fought to save the financial system and themselves. Please welcome Andrew Ross Sorkin. I'm just going to wait for your father to show up so I can start the interview. (laughs) You're a kid. How old are you? 32. Are you really? I am. What, do you keep yourself in some sort of vegetable crisper? How do you, how do you maintain this type of... Uh, it's the makeup. Rejuven- the makeup. What do you think? You're, you're wearing it, too. I know, but I look like Ernest Borgnine. You look fine. <laughs> too Big to Fail, Too Big to Fail is uh, uh, the story of these uh, banks that had to be bailed out by the uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program, or yes. TARP. That's what it's called. What has changed since we've given them the $784 billion? Nothing. Okay. So couldn't you have done with a shorter book? Shorter book, book. right. A pamphlet, perhaps. Yes. In fact, that was, I mean, I think the interesting issue is that we need to have change. In fact, when I think hopefully when you get a chance to read it, because I know you haven't read it. I have, I have read it. it. It's excellent. Um, thank you. Um, is 
that we really haven't had any change. A year later, we are in no better shape, frankly, Let's than run we down were the a year before. Let's run down the troubles. Okay. One of the troubles was they had over-leveraged themselves. Uh, at yes. times it was, what, 30 to 1 30 in, to one. in leverage? Uh, what, what is the leverage situation now at these banks? Good news, less today, but there's no rule. So if you wanted to go 30 to 1, you could. Who, where are they at now, would, would you say average? Probably 10, 12. Oh, there you go. That's, that's something. That's good. No, no. Things, they brought things, it. That's a little bit more reasonable. That's a little more reasonable. But the issue is that long-term, the memories on Wall Street are so short mm -hmm. that we can be back here. I mean, every time we've had a crisis, right. it, this is what it's been about. It's been about leverage and debt. And every time, we have never learned the original lesson. Okay. The derivatives market. These uh, over-the-counter... Right. Uh, whiffs of mortgage, mortgage molecules that they bundled yep. and sold in Slovenia, and then the Slovenians mm -hmm. sold that to uh, the Belgians, and then right. the Belgians Go buried it in global the Global gambling, right. Global yeah. gambling. Right. What has happened with the uh, uh, over-the-counter derivatives market? Not much. We're, it, that's the problem. We are still in the same place that we were a year ago. When it comes to the rules, there are no new rules. So the derivatives market, no more, no more transparent than it used to be. As you said on the leverage, no more transparent or, frankly, I mean, the numbers come down but not that much better. Capital requirements, how much money you have to keep in the bank for a rainy day. There's no rule about that either. So a lot of the stuff's going to be proposed, and there's, we're seeing proposals, but we haven't got there yet. Will they get there? Do, do, do they have any, any, any power? Well, I, yeah. go, no, I think we're going to get there, and we'll get there, but not as meaningful as you'd want it to be. And the farther we get away from the crisis, really, and the more it looks like the economy's stabilizing, and I don't want to tell you, I'm not sure if there's a head fake or not for us, but it's going to get harder and harder to get that regulation with teeth. And frankly, the folks on Wall Street are already fighting back. Well, here, here's what I don't understand. The disconnect between, you know, they got this Wall Street and Main Street. The idea is uh, Main Street is only really invested in Wall Street through mutual funds and through pension funds. Right. So that's really the only thing. So it's a very abstract relationship at best. Well, I'll tell you, and I think Wall Street doesn't articulate this issue well enough, which is there is an element to which it helps grease the wheels for everything else. You know, when the economy was about to fall off of its axis last year, mm -hmm. people say, what was on the other side, right? It really meant that big and small companies weren't going to be able to make payroll, that McDonald's franchisees weren't going to be able to pay their people. So it was not just right. Wall Street. And there was an issue, and you'll see it in the book, where they were not just talking about Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs going out of business next. They were talking about General Electric going bankrupt. So right. it, it, did, it did hit Main Street in a different way. Right. So we would have, we would have seen some fallout, but they would have right. had the pivot. But what's interesting to me is we give these guys billions of dollars with very few strings attached. And the stock market goes up. I'm assuming as a result of these few right. banks now being reliquified, even though they're no longer right. uh, loaning anyway. Right. I call them too big to fail squared, but yes. Thank you. Uh, then Obama yesterday announces a, a, a bailout program for Main Street, right. and Wall Street plummets. There is a, a direct correlation. You help Main Street, it doesn't really help Wall Street. The good news... But do they have no. to be such obvious dicks about it? <laughs> Can't they just that one day, that one day, he announces, Obama comes out and says, I'm going to bail out Main Street. Can't they just go, don't sell till tomorrow. We're going to look mean. What is that? You know, that came on a day, by the way, when all of a sudden we heard that we were going to get more money back from TARP. So, you know, we thought TARP was so bad. Now it's coming back to us. That seems good. 
But there's another thing that I think is scaring some people, which is some of these banks are starting to pay back the money faster. Right. And the reason they're paying it back faster is so they can then pay their people again. That's what this is really all about. It's about no the question. bonuses. Aren't they still borrowing money at 0%? Exactly. And, and it's not so a, listen, it's not a hard business. If they give you a dollar and right. you can sell it for three, that's not a bad business. No, it's a great business. It's the government gave me 0% yes. loans, and, and then I could help people too. <laughs> why don't we do it? But, but the problem, by the way, is they're not helping people, and they're not helping people enough. No, that's, and that's the bigger issue. They're giving you the money for zero percent, why couldn't they and they're not this? lending it out to the people. No, not only that, they're jacking up their credit card rates. They're getting the money right. at zero percent, and they're charging you thirty percent on the back end on the credit card. I mean, they're they're. I hate to. I hesitate to use a term of sexual violence, but it is akin. <laughs> it's it's utter bull. It can't. This can't be right. I, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to disagree with you. Really. <laughs> Aaron Sorkin just called you What are you going to do about that? And that guy knows more about it than I do. Well, you, but you're, you're feeling good. You think there's going to be progress and there will be accountability. No, that's, my, that's what I'm telling you. You're going to break the floor. No, I think the hardest part is that we haven't had accountability. And right. the ethos, the culture, the greed is still good. That is still there. That has not changed. Right. Well, you can't change that. I mean, even the guy, uh, what's his name, Mac, came out and said, please regulate us. We can't control ourselves. It was like one it of those was, helpless moments. where It, it, was, like was, an, it was an amazing moment because he's basically saying, take take the crack pipe away from me. Yeah. And and at the same time, <laughs> no, that's, that's what it's like. That's what it's like. Hey, Goldman Sachs, put down the crack pipe. The golden crack pipe. No, it, it was an honest moment, but the culture you. of Wall Street's not going to change from the corner office. It's probably going to have to change from Washington. I hear you. Too Big to Fail is on the bookshelves now. Andrew Ross Sorkin, you know what talking about? When you're on a holiday, you can't find the words to say. All the things that come to you, and I want to feel. I love this season is because this is when consumers do God's work and put businesses back in the black. You see, I may be a Christian, but I'm also a capitalist. And I will defend our capitalist system against all enemies unless there's a way to profit from its demise. <laughs> Say, by short-selling oxygen. That's why I am steamed about recent attacks on the Federal Reserve. Known to most of us as the Fed, and by bailed-out banks as Dr. Blankcheck von Moneypants. <laughs> See, folks, the Fed was formed in 1913 in response to the panic of 1907 when a failed attempt to corner the copper market by the Knickerbocker Trust Company triggered a banking crisis that caused the Dow to lose half of its value. And ever since, 
The name Knickerbocker has been associated with massive failure. <laughs> now, some, some conspiracy theorists out there have criticized the Fed as a secretive cabal that only benefits the well-connected, when in fact, the Fed is merely an extra-constitutional star chamber that controls our monetary policy with no oversight. Big difference. The point is, no one needs to see how that sausage gets made. We know there's a fair amount of pig rectum in there. Still delicious. Besides, there's no evil organization controlling the Fed. According to its website, the Federal Reserve System is not owned by anyone. See? Just like most of the houses in your neighborhood. <laughs> and, and the Fed needs that autonomy because they have an important job. They set the prime interest rate for all loans. Raising rates encourages savings, while lowering them encourages spending on big-ticket items like houses and cars. Unless you saved money by buying a house, in which case you now live in your car. <laughs> Every three months, the Fed meets in secret and determines the prime rate by, let's say, slaughtering a chicken and rubbing the blood on Jacqueline Bissett's belly, donning a Venetian mask and watching strangers hump in a suburban mansion, and finally passing through the Stargate to receive the interest rates from the aliens who built the pyramids. Then, then a puff of smoke comes out of the Fed chimney, announcing whether the economy has seen its shadow. The fact is, fact is, we don't need to know what they're doing as long as we think they know what they're doing. That makes the economy stronger, which means whatever they did was right, which means they know what they're doing. But some people, some people, folks, want to pull down the Fed's pantaloons to look at their fiscal naughty parts. Like Senator and Phil Donahue stunt double Chris Todd who recently introduced a bill that would consolidate oversight of banks now shared between the Fed and three other regulators into a single new agency. That agency? Goldman Sachs. <laughs> and some in Congress want to do even more than regulate. They are calling for Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke's scalp, his ample D-cup scalp. <laughs> Jim? The Fed has done a horrible job as a regulator, and now yet you're wanting to continue as a regulator. You put the printing presses into overdrive to fund the government spending and hand out cheap money to your masters on Wall Street. You are the definition of a moral hazard. Wrong, sir. The definition of a moral hazard is being married to Tiger Woods. <laughs> The man leading the charge against reconfirming Bernanke as Fed chair is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Not since the Great Depression has the financial system been as unsafe, unsound, and unstable as it has been during Mr. Bernanke's tenure. I think it's time for Mr. Bernanke to go. Where does he get off criticizing the chairman of the Fed when I believe the Vermont state currency is cheddar cheese hacky sacks? <laughs> Plus... Some websites out there are spreading the ugly rumor that Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Namely, Bernie Sanders' official Senate website. 
The only reason Glenn Beck hasn't gone after Sanders is because it's too easy. It's like playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon with Kira Sedgwick. <laughs> so where does the only socialist in the Senate get off criticizing the head capitalist in America? Here to tell me where he gets off, let's say, live via satellite. Please welcome Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Steve. Now, sir, I know you're a very busy man. Your time is precious. So let's get right to it after these messages from my corporate sponsors. My head is a box filled with nothing. And that's the way I like it. You're probably aware that if you use your cell phone while traveling abroad, you're going to get raked over the coals with roaming charges. Well, I want to give you another option. GoSim is a company that provides international SIM cards you can use in your own phone and load with prepaid minutes that save you about 85% on those international calls. The minutes never expire and can be used in 175 countries. In fact, in 75 countries, including all of Europe, you can receive calls and text messages for absolutely free. I sincerely encourage you to check out the deal at the special URL, gosim.com slash best of the left. Be sure to use this address so they know I sent you. gosim.com slash best of the left. Norway returns to a pillage-based economy. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Norwegian Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg announced plans today for his nation's return to a pillage-based economy. Speaking today from the capital city of Oslo, Stoltenberg said the current global financial panic has inspired his people to once again return to the sea and blow the horn of war. In all the we will take all the plunder we can. I will make my home out of big-screen TVs. Stoltenberg added that Norway's first order of business will be to carry the highly prized French education system home to its shores. Doyle Redland for The Onion. informative and entertaining messages from my corporate sponsors. Please buy their products multiple times. You'll be making America strong. We now return to our exclusive interview with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Sir, thank you for joining us. Before we get started, Senator, I want to give you a chance to address these vicious rumors that you're a socialist. I am a democratic socialist. That is correct. What is the difference? Is that not an oxymoron? What democratic socialism is about is making sure that all people get a piece of the pie, that we have a far fairer distribution 
of wealth and income that currently exist. And I think it is a national disgrace that you have so few with so much. But, sir, so I am one of those ones so who little. have so much. I'm a huge well, fan of disparity. Well, What's the point of making all this money if I don't make a lot more than you do? By the way, Senator, well, I, think I the, make a lot more the, than you do. Yeah, I know you do. You make a hell of a lot more than the average American makes. Look, we're never going to live, and nobody wants to live, in a society where everybody has the same amount of money. But what justice demands, what egalitarianism demands, is you cannot have a situation where so few have so much, where the CEOs on Wall Street are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, often engaged in reckless, if not illegal, behavior, while the average worker has lost his job because it's gone to China, or has seen a significant decline in wages. It sounds to me like you want to handcuff the invisible hand of the market. The invisible hand of the market has to be free to go down to Wall Street to give hedge fund managers a reach around. <laughs> well, that invisible hand of the market through the deregulation of Wall Street has led those large financial institutions into a situation where they were peddling worthless securities in which they drove this country into the financial crisis that we're in right now, which resulted not only in a $700 billion bailout, but trillions of dollars of taxpayers' money going to zero-interest loans for the Fed. Bernanke saved us. Yeah, right. Now, Bernanke right. saved Thank Wall you. Street. I accept your apology. <laughs> but some of us, Stephen, do not necessarily believe that Wall Street is America. Poverty has grown. More and more people are losing their health insurance and their pensions. And if you think Bernanke is saving America, I think you're a little bit confused. Yes, yes, he's fighting to see Wall Street go back to where it was before. Huge compensation packages for the head of the financial institutions. Wall Street, in my humble opinion, is not America. We've got to stand up for the middle class and working families, not for the big money interests. But who better to solve the problem than the person who helped create the problem. It's like if you, get, if you are cursed by a witch, you have to get the original witch to take the curse off you. Or don't you understand financial fairy tales? Well, that, that is an interesting proposition. The people who were asleep at the wheel, the people who caused the problem, are the people who are going to solve it. Well, maybe, but I, I really don't think so. I think you need an entirely new look at Wall Street. Now, if you don't like Ben Bernanke, who, who would you like to see as a Fed chairman? I, I assume, since you're Vermont, you'd rather have Ben and Jerry. Well, they would probably be a lot better choice. They could certainly make some flavors, perhaps Credit Crunch or Strawberry oh. Cluster <laughs> You want the government to own everything. You think the government should run Wall Street. No, I don't want the government to run everything. What I do want to do is to see us learn a little bit from Scandinavia and Europe and make sure that in this country we have a reasonably fair distribution of wealth and income rather than the top 1% owning more wealth than the bottom 90% and the top 1% earning more than the bottom 50%. That's unfair. That's absurd. My father came to this country without a nickel in his pocket. This country has fulfilled the dreams of immigrants all over the world. And My father came to this country without a pocket, sir. He came without a pocket. I will not be out-poor-fathered <laughs> by you.
All right. Sir, if we do end up with a Scandinavian model, can you assure me that I will not have to eat pickled herring? <laughs> Can't make that guarantee, Stephen. That's a nightmare scenario, Senator. <laughs> Senator Sanders, thank you so much for joining us. Bernie Sanders, Times. Uh, now, they kind of, kind of caught on to this late. I've been talking about this for months. But whatever, who cares? Great. They come in with excellent details, excellent reporting. I'm happy to have them here. I'm glad they finally realized it. It turns out that some of the largest banks, and especially Goldman Sachs, bet against the same mortgages and investment properties that they were selling to other people. So now, let me explain how this works. They take a bunch of mortgages, they put them together. They take, they know some of those mortgages are going to blow up, and sometimes they charge, uh, well, the people who bought it and, and it collapsed on them charge, that Goldman Sachs and some of the other companies did it on purpose. They put the bad mortgages into certain funds that they know for a fact are going to blow up because they're the ones putting it together. Then they go and sell it to investors. They go, oh, look at this wonderful, lovely package we got of credit uh, uh, default swaps for you and uh, collateralized debt obligations. These are fantastic. You're going to want to buy. And then they turn around and make bets. And this is legal at the time, and it's still legal now. And they say, oh, I bet that thing falls apart. I'll bet you a lot of money that that thing falls apart. Well, they know because they're the ones who put it together. And look, to be fair, the people who bought, made those bets with them, they, you know, they knew. They knew that Goldman Sachs put them together. They knew they had an incentive uh, to put them together in a way that they would explode, but they were stupid enough to buy it, right? So, but now the question is, is it fraud when you put together investment vehicles that you know are going to blow up? And then when you get into the details, it's amazing. Now, before, there were no such things as triggers, and what they do is it's just called selling short. The bet you can make is, I think these things are going to lose value. And in the past, if they lost their value, then you would get your money back. It was kind of like insurance. That was his original intent, and that intent was not so bad. But now it's just turned into gambling, right? Uh, but they never had triggers. And, but Goldman Sachs and a couple of guys at Deutsche Bank and Morgan Stanley invented this idea in 2005. Oh, you know what? They invented two key ideas. One, first is the trigger. Hey, if these start to go south a little bit, they don't have to go south all the way. If they go south a little bit, it triggers you starting to pay us a lot of money. And invention number two is very important. We can bet up to six or seven times the face value of that investment. So when it goes south, you don't only just owe me the 100 bucks, to use this analogy, that, that that thing was worth. You owe me 600 bucks. 
and you don't just owe me the 600 bucks when it goes completely south. When it starts to go south a little bit, it gets triggered and you start owing me the money right away. Now, can you see how that might start a very bad cycle where all of a sudden the guys who made the wrong bets owe a lot of money to Goldman Sachs and some of the other companies and they don't know how to pay them? And then they start dipping into other parts of their banks to try to pay it. They run out of money and then all of a sudden global economic collapse. Ah, funny how that worked out. But you know what? Those guys who made the bets that these things were going to explode, they made a lot of money. Well, what, the main guy who put them together for, uh, for Goldman Sachs was Jonathan Eggle, uh, and that's from the New York Times story. And you know what? They rewarded him in 2007 by making him managing director. They're like, way to explode the global economy. Well, at that time, it hadn't exploded yet, but it had begun, right? Uh, but you know what? We made a lot of money off of it. Look, to give you a sense of whether they knew or they didn't know, that's the key. If they're just doing it as insurance, that's not so bad. Like, hey, you know, we have these things, but we'd like to insure to make sure we don't lose our money. But if they're doing it because they know it's going to blow up and they want to make money off the bets, that's terrible. That's, that could very well easily be fraud. Look, to give you an example, uh, he's put together this Abacus Fund, and 84% of the investments inside the Abacus Fund went south. Now, that's an enormous number, 84%. And now you're telling me he didn't know that, oh, well, who knew that that fund would be in such bad shape when I put it together and then bet against it? Okay. This is how they defrauded people, in my opinion, not just my opinion, but the opinion of a lot of experts. And I'm not saying in this particular case they're going to have to look more into it to see if it meets a technical definition of fraud. But then they got, it, and that would all be fun if they were all playing their reindeer games with one another, right? And they say, oh, Johnny, you owe me money. Okay, here's your $800 million or whatever. But the guys who lost the bets came and got it from us. They got it from the taxpayer. And that's the part that enrages me. You have the right to all the financial independence that you want, but your rights and at the bridge of my wallet, to paraphrase another famous saying. You can't take it from me. That's crazy. And that's what they did. One of the funds that they set up was worth $800 million. When it went down, uh, they wound up making over $300 million on it uh, based on what Eggle, how Eggle put the deal together. And I can go on and on. It, you know, um, it, it, from 2005 to 2007, $108 billion of these securities were issued that were all walking time bonds. And that's at least $108 billion because they didn't have to report uh, all the trades that they made. So now here comes the other fun part. So Eggle gets uh, uh, rewarded by becoming managing director of Goldman Sachs at a very young age. So uh, his shenanigans wind up giving him a lot of money and, and a better position. But there was another guy uh, who worked at a company called Tri uh, Tricadia Incorporated. His name was Lewis Sachs. And Tricadia was up to their necks in these time bombs that uh, they wound up making uh, and 50% return in 2007 from these instruments that they put together. Uh, they were the eighth and ninth worst performing uh, CDOs on the market, and they were downgraded on at least 75% of their associated assets within a year of being issued. That means it was junk. And they knew it was junk, and they made a ton of money off that junk. Okay? So his name was Louis Sachs. What happened to him? He must have gotten punished. I mean, you can't get away with this kind of stuff. All right. Special Counselor to Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. Instead of punishing these guys, we're rewarding them and we're bringing them into the government and they're deciding what our new policy should be. 
Now, do you understand why we're concerned that the Obama administration in this regard is headed in the wrong direction, that they have the exact wrong guys running these programs? All they're doing is setting it up in a way that they can get out of government later and rob us again. Hell no. Hell no. I've been telling you the next fight is on financial reform. And progressives should do two things. One, they should go ballistic on this stuff and not let them get away with it. This is highway robbery. And number two, they should find allies in the right wing, because the right wing isn't happy about this either. Not the leaders, the leaders, the politicians, etc. Nine out of ten of them are taking corporate money and they love it, okay? But the actual citizens that are right wing in this country, why do they want to get robbed? They don't want to get robbed. They're just, in that regard, they're like us. If we can reach them and explain the actual problem to them. And then you say to them, hey, would you like to work against Obama's Treasury Department to make sure we don't get robbed again? And you're going to get a lot of help from the right wing on that. But you have to do it in a smart way. Don't, it's not a matter of lashing out. It's a matter of getting it right and building a, a big enough coalition that we can say, not anymore, not on our watch. We can't have the robbers telling us how to set up the next bank. Thanks for listening, everybody. I have had some huge news come down on me in the last couple of days. It is, on the one hand, terrible news. On the other hand, it is potentially amazingly good news. And on the third hand, it is so much in its infancy that I can't even talk about it. There's just, there's no way of knowing exactly what's going to happen going forward. Uh, everything's up in the air. It's chaotic. And it, it would be irresponsible for me to talk about it at this point. But it is just, it is such big news that I just, I had to get that off my chest. And it feels good to be able to talk to you guys candidly uh, about, about things like that, even though I can't give you any details. So moving on, I want to thank a couple of members. Melanie C. signed up on October 12th and Thomas C. signed up on October 31st. No relation between those two C's. Uh, Thomas uh, signed up on October 31st, and uh, but then just recently decided to upgrade his membership. Uh, moved up from uh, $5 a month to 10 So huge thanks to Thomas. Of course, Melanie also. Thanks to them and all of the members who keep the show going. Without the members supporting the show, I would be in uh, absolute financial turmoil or living at my parents' house possibly. Who knows? In return, of course, the members have the warm and fuzzy feeling of knowing they're helping to keep the show going strong. Eight shows a month, twice a week, unlike the once a week it used to be. Back when this show was just a hobby for me, it was an absolute chore to get out one show a week. Now, thanks to the members, I have a little bit of time that I can dedicate to the show. And so all of you get to enjoy eight episodes a month. And of course, as a bonus, the members get access to the Best of the Left members-only raw feed, where they get all of the clips that eventually end up making into the show, audio, video, and then some bonus clips as well, stuff that I find and is great, but just never makes it into the final cut of the show. And this, the raw feed has been upgraded to now have separate feeds for audio, separate feed for video, and a separate feed for just the bonus content. So... You pick what you want to listen to and get that delivered 
without having to go through all the rest of the crap. Now, if you want just a little bit of bonus content, you can get that totally on the cheap. If you have an iPhone or iPod Touch, you can get the Best of the Left application, and with every single episode that goes out, there's one clip of bonus material, almost always video bonus material that you can watch right there on your device. Today's bonus is uh, yet another clip from The Daily Show because they were just going to town on the economy recently. So, of course, I went full bore comedy with this episode, as I'm sure you noticed, and kept that going with the bonus material. So I guess that's it for today. I don't have any other news to report other than the gigantically enormous news that I can't report. So I guess that'll do it. If you have not yet subscribed to the show in one way or another to get every single episode that comes down the pipe, check out bestofleft.com and see right there in the subscribe box on the right-hand side of the page. There are so many ways to subscribe, I can't even mention them all. But there's one that fits your needs, I promise. If you want to help support the show, first tell all your friends about it. And then, again, go to bestofleft.com and check out the support box, again, on the right side of the page. There's all the details you could possibly want about everything you can do to support the show, whether it's you know donating a couple of bucks or becoming a member or voting or reviewing or on and on and on. Every way to support the show is there. Again, too many ways to mention. You can stay connected to the show by following us on Twitter, becoming a fan on Facebook. And finally, if you want to get all the links to sources and especially the music we use in the show, I got a great email just today from someone saying that he had had a piece of music for 10 years. Someone had given him a mixed CD. He'd been he'd had this great song for 10 years, had no idea who it was, and then I played the song on the show and because it was listed on the website, he was able to find it and click through and get it on iTunes with the artist's name and the name of the song and everything. So if you're ever wondering what the song is that's playing on the show, it's always going to be listed on the blog on the website. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Wednesday and every weekend thanks to our members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Thought I'd find some black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Hi, my name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, 
Do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.